Welcome to episode 66, where we hope you'll get your kicks of UConn 360. That's the uh, only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. I'm your facilitator of sorts, Tom Breen. Joining me from the three corners of Connecticut are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hey. Ken Best. Present and accounted for. We've got an exciting show for you this week. It's going to be a week for the sports fans which I believe there are some of you in UConn Nation. And it's an exciting week in general because this, as we record this, we are mere hours away from uh, students moving back to stores in Stanford. And as you listen to this, hopefully you listen to it on Wednesday, but you, know, you can listen to it whenever. As you listen to this, students will be back on campus. We will be gearing up for what is sure to be one of the most memorable semesters in the history of the institution. I or, think that is an accurate assessment. Are you guys excited about it? It's not really going to impact me all that much. <laughs> I'm staying home to keep density down. But um, we have been hard at work on reopen.uconn.edu, putting up all the information on the plans there. So I'm I'm hoping it goes well for everybody. I've been talking to students and faculty, so it's, it, I've been doing the normal thing. Hopefully that pace will, will increase as uh, everyone's back. Uh, because I am going to be on campus uh, sporadically, I have to get a COVID test, and mm-hmm. I, I have to take training. And um, so I'm going Monday to get my COVID test. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Can I tell you it's not that bad? Everybody says it's bad. It's not that bad. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. I mean, You're a tough guy. It's all good. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I might faint, but uh, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> have you been to an otolaryngologist yet? Oh, my God. Try not to say that word ever again. I have, I have no, can't wait to see what the transcript comes up for that That's one. That's going to be good. <laughs> Place your bets. That's an ear, nose, and throat specialist, by yes. the way. My ears uh, in healthcare have prepared me with something, at least. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so we hope you uh, listeners are all doing well and hope you're ready for some exciting UConn content because this week, it's the summertime. The, the sports seasons are very much up in the air or not happening in some cases, as you know. So I guess for some reason we thought it would be a good idea to talk to one of the most knowledgeable people uh, in the world of UConn sports. That's Mike Enright. He was a longtime sports information director for UConn Athletics before coming on over to the mothership at University Communications. And actually before that, he was an assistant uh, sports information director at Notre Dame, which has some history with UConn, Mm -hmm. as you may be aware. Uh, Mike's a great guy. Mike knows everything there is to know about UConn sports. So I thought it would be fun to sit down with him and get kind of a top ten sports moments from him now as he as he asked me to make clear he doesn't regard this as the 10 best moments but sort of the 10 most meaningful moments to him these are all things that he experienced in person by the way so this isn't just like he, there's nothing from the 1930s here you know not gonna... <laughs> good recent memory awesome yeah recent memory so uh why don't we listen to uh what mike enright mr yukon sports uh, has to say about some memorable sports occasions well, why don't we why don't we dive right in? Why don't we start off? I don't know if you want to go from ten to one. Or well, we'll go one. from ten to one, and again, the rankings are a little variable, so uh, they're all great memories. Number ten was January eighteenth, nineteen ninety six. It was a UConn Notre Dame women's basketball game, but probably not one too many people remember because there's so many other great games in the series. It was the first time uh, that UConn and Notre Dame ever played in women's basketball. 
And uh, I wasn't even working at UConn at the time. As a matter of fact, I was the assistant sports information director at Notre Dame. Wow. And uh, UConn won 87-64. Carol uh, Walters was terrific. She scored 28 points. Uh, 6,500 people at the game, which was the biggest crowd at the Joyce Center for women's basketball ever. And why it means a lot to me was because UConn came in there like rock stars. And you know, Notre Dame has a lot of rock stars in football and men's basketball. And I love Notre Dame and I love working there. But uh, when, when UConn came in, it gave me a lot of pride that, hey, here comes my alma mater. And to, they, they did a great job and, and won by over 20 points. And after the game, I remember Jennifer Rosati. The autograph line for Jennifer Rosati must have been 30, 40 deep of kids from South Bend. And uh, and she signed everyone. So it, it, it meant a lot to me that my alma mater came out Notre Dame, a place that has a lot of pride on its own and, and, and made an impressive showing. Number nine is June 4th, 2010, the only UConn loss on this list, but it was it was a great night. The baseball team, uh, for the first time in, in, a, in a long time, played host to an NCAA baseball regional. One of the reasons it was important to me was because it was held at Dodd Stadium in Norwich, which is my hometown, but it's rare for a Northeast team to host a baseball regional. Only 16 teams do. It's usually the, the Blue Bloods and the SEC and the ACC and the Pac-10. UConn lost to Oregon that night 5-3, but it was a terrific, terrific atmosphere. There were almost 6,000 people at the game. Everybody was wearing UConn jerseys. And as I told people, it was a real testament to, to UConn Nation, if you will, because I, I don't think too many people knew many of the players on that team. But because UConn jerseys and, and UConn was playing, it was a great night. Traffic was clogged all the way up Route 2, up to Colchester. The great thing is in, in that batting order, in the starting nine for the UConn that night, four players went to the major leagues, including World Series MVP George Springer. And when you throw the pitching staff in, there were six major leaguers on that UConn team. It was just a tremendous night. UConn wound up beating Central Connecticut the next day and then losing to Oregon, actually, the next day on a Sunday to be eliminated for the tournament. But one of the all-time great weekends of, of my UConn memory. Number eight is is one that probably uh, only the only the diehards remember. October 18th, 1980. I was 14 years old and went to Fitton Field with my father up in Worcester. And the football team beat Holy Cross 18-17 in a pouring rainstorm. And at that time, beating Holy Cross was a pretty big deal. They were still playing a, a pretty much a national schedule. But what made the game just just thrilling, and the, the highlights are still up on YouTube if anybody wants to, wants to check it out. In, in the pouring rain, uh, UConn scored a touchdown on the final play of the game on a four-yard pass by quarterback Ken Schweitzer, one of the all-time great athletes in UConn history and, and in Connecticut history. So now it's 17-16, Holy Cross, with no time on the clock left. And this was before college football had overtime. So the coach at the time, Walton Adzak, had the choice. Does he go for the tie, kick the extra point, which is, you know, you've got a pretty good chance of making, or do you go for the win? Well, to his credit, he, he, he didn't even consider the tie. He went for the win. Schweitzer uh, completed the play, passed to Keith Hugger, two-point conversion. UConn wins 18-17 in just a deluge, a, a huge win for UConn football at the time, a very exciting play, a very gutsy play call. And as, as a kid, really, really a lot of fun to remember that game. This is uh, another one. I think I think UConn basketball fans will remember the, the beginning of the Jim Calhoun era will remember this one. It was in Coach Calhoun's first year, February 28th, 1987. Basketball team beat Seton Hall 56-54. It was a noon game at the Civic Center. There were only 8,100 people there. UConn had lost six biggest games in a row. It was it was getting towards the end of the season. Phil Gamble and Cliff Robinson, the two stars of the team at the beginning of the year, weren't suited up due to some academic reasons. But Steve Peichel, now the head coach of Rutgers and, and 
Bristol kid had 27 points. Jerry Besslink on a senior night had 10. Uh, the late Jeff King had, had 12 points. Players had the flu. There were concussions. Brian Hall, again, RIP to him. He, we, we lost Brian Hall. Uh, he was a soccer goalie who actually suited up for the team and came in. And UConn won 56-54 against a pretty good Seton Hall team. The game ended. The team went to the locker room, and there was a standing ovation for the team. And, and they came back out and took a curtain call uh, as uh, at their last home game. And to me, what, what that game meant was uh, was two things. It, it was it was a sign that you know early on that Jim Calhoun was going to get this thing done. Uh, he he always called the very the situation here at UConn very doable, but it would take a lot of hard work. What well, was a, it was a sign at the end of year one that that this is going to work out. It was also one of those great. Hartford Civic Center Saturdays from from the that we knew from the seventies and eighties. UConn played at noon. The Whalers played at seven o'clock. Uh, beat the Nordiques that night. And in between, I remember after finishing on my work going up, Chuck's was crowded, Margaritas was crowded, uh, Gaetano's was crowded. Everybody was having a good time. It was just one of those great afternoon evenings where where Hartford was really really a big time sports city for about twelve hours and. People could go to both games and have a, have, a, have a good time in between. It's just a real fun memory. All right, we're in the top five now. We are in the top five. This is moving along. So December 21st, 2010, the women's basketball team beats Florida State at now the XL Center as opposed to the Hartford Civic Center. 93-62 to 62 score uh, doesn't seem like much, but it was the 89th straight win for the women's basketball team. And that topped the 88 win streak by the great John Wooden UCLA teams in the 1970s. You know, Gino said after the game, I don't want my team to compare themselves to anyone. I'm not John Wooden, and this isn't UCLA. We're UConn, and, and that's good enough. Uh, Maya Moore had a great game. But it was interesting because there was a lot of conversation with the 89th win. Should women's basketball records be separate from men's basketball records? And trying to put it in context to the great UCLA John Wooden teams of the 70s. And I got to be honest with you, there was sometimes I was trying to figure out, you know, should this just be two separate thoughts? Uh, who showed up at the game but Greg Wooden, who was John Wooden's grandson. And uh, and he, he talked about how John Wooden would have been thrilled that this UConn women's basketball team beat his team's record because he loved the way uh, – John Wooden loved the way the, the UConn women played. And as I you know thought about it, I said, well, if John Wooden's grandson recognizes this as the record – you know, who's, who's for anybody to say it, it, it wasn't. It was a terrific night. Number four is uh, the first time I ever saw an NCAA tournament basketball game in person. It was March 13th, 1976 at the Providence Civic Center. I was lucky enough that my dad took me to the game. My dad and my godfather, who was also a big UConn fan. I think we sat in the last row, literally the last row of the Providence Civic Center, but that didn't matter. UConn beat Hofstra in the first round, 80-78. to 78. The game went into overtime. There were only uh, 32 teams in the tournament at that point. So a win in this game meant UConn was on to the, onto the Sweet 16 down in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. So UConn was down by 13 points at the half, 43-30. Waterbury's uh, Joey Welton had a great second half. He was the leading scorer for UConn. I think he was a freshman uh, that year. He had a flop-top haircut that kind of bobbed up and down as he dribbled down the court, hit 23 points. Uh, Tony Hansen, also from Waterbury, who we uh, recently lost, had 12 points. Like I said, UConn was down by 13 points at the half, came back to win 80-78, uh, to 78, and I distinctively remember the UConn pep band because they were, uh, the team was on their way to Greensboro for the Sweet 16 playing uh, as I was leaving uh, the arena. Uh, their song was, Nothing Could Be Finer Than To Be In Carolina In The Morning, was what the, was what the band was playing. And a terrific win, and, and of course, the Coach Rowe, who – 
who still is uh, is a UConn icon and, and just has thousands of friends around the state and the nation uh, for him to go to the Sweet 16 was was terrific. Number three, uh, this might get a little more in the mainstream, but December 4th, 2010, Raymond James Stadium down in Tampa, Florida, UConn Beach, South Florida, 52-yard field goal by Dave Taggart with 17 seconds left. UConn Beach, South Florida, only 10 years into being a, uh, an FBS team, UConn is on its way to the Fiesta Bowl. They had won five straight games at the end of the year. They go on, play Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. For me, for people like Lou Perkins and Lou Rome and, and Governor Rowland, who had this vision for FBS football, for 1A football at UConn, who believed that, that it could happen here, it, it was just incredible. You know, obviously right now the football team the last couple of years, the wins haven't quite gone their way. But I, I think the philosophy we have now in football is going to work. And I think people need to remember it wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago, that we were we were on our way to play Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. So number two is we're going to go back to baseball, uh, June 7th, 2011. And this is uh, when the baseball team beat Clemson at Clemson to win the Clemson Regional and go on to the Super Regionals for the first time. It was a four-team double elimination tournament, and the Huskies uh, made the sin of losing the first game, which in a double elimination tournament is not good because you have to win four straight games in a row. Well, sure enough, UConn did win four straight games in a row, including the last two against the home team, uh, Clemson. And, you know, college baseball in the cell is pretty serious stuff. We, we take it pretty serious but because there's not a ton of major league teams down there that really follow college baseball. So each night there was six, 7,000 people at the games, and one of, one of the great coaching moves I've ever seen at UConn, Greg Napo, terrific pitcher for UConn. And in one of the elimination games, UConn went ahead by a bunch against Sacred Heart. He took the starter out to rest him. So in one day's rest, uh, Greg Napo pitched five and two-thirds innings, got the win. UConn went up early. The game wasn't even close. Napo was the regional MVP. Uh, This team had five future major leaguers on it, Springer, Bonds, and uh, Nick Ahmed, who's now a, a Gold Glove shortstop for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And the great thing about that, I remember, was after we beat Clemson in the last game and fans are kind of filing out, we were on our way. We never even came back to stores because we are going to go play South Carolina in Super Regional, who was a terrific team, and, and beat UConn two games. And I actually think this 2011 team would have went to the College World Series if it played any other team in the Super Regional. Uh, but South Carolina was terrific. They wound up winning the national championship. I think the NCAA kind of set it up for Clemson, South Carolina, uh, Super Regional. But as we're leaving, there was no bitterness among the Clemson fans. In fact, they were telling us to go down there and beat the heck out of the Gamecocks. And it was a real supportive thing that maybe you see in college baseball, but maybe not necessarily in other sports. But it was it was just a terrific night. Number two is, I think, one that everybody remembers. Uh, April 3rd, 2004, the men's basketball team beat Duke in the national semifinals at the Alamo Dome by a point. 79 and 78. Emeka Okafor, one of the great student athletes in UConn history, academic All-American, great player. He scored 18 points all in the second half because in the first half, in fact, in the first four minutes of the game, he was called for two fouls and was on the bench for the rest of the game. And as Husky fans can probably remember, it didn't put Coach Calhoun in a very good mood for the rest of the uh, the rest of the first half with with the referees or or with anybody. But Emeka had a great second half. Duke still led 75-67 late in the game. And UConn scored 12 straight points uh, down the stretch. And I, I got to say, Coach Calhoun showed his his Hall of Fame coaching ability against the coach on the uh, on the Duke bench that night. And two days later, UConn wins the national championship against Georgia Tech. All right, now the 
Now number one, the true so number, now one. number one. Now number one, uh, you know, this one has everything. And, and, and I think people remember this. If, you know, if you're a golfer, you want to win at Augusta. If, if you're a soccer player, you want to win at Wembley Stadium. If you're a horse racing person, you want to win at Saratoga or Churchill Downs. And if you're a college football player, you want to win at Notre Dame Stadium. And November 21st, 2009, for me, had everything. UConn wins the game in double overtime. Uh, Andre Dixon with a with a touchdown run to win it 33-30. It was the first win for, for the team since the, the death of Jasper Howard, which I think everybody remembers, which, which was uh, very, very emotional. The UConn band went to the game. There were thousands of UConn fans in South Bend. It was just so emotional. You know, for me, having a Notre Dame background, it meant a lot. Even now, it's a 13, uh, 11 years later, it's still hard to put it all in words what it meant. For UConn football to win at Notre Dame was was just something. I'll never forget as the team's leaving the field, hearing the UConn fight song just piping over Notre Dame Stadium after the game was just an incredible memory. It it it, it, it had everything. So that's that's why it's number one for me. interesting stuff tom that we haven't heard yet <laughs> why, don't, why don't we try that again with a bit of radio magic yeah so that that was great and you guys really uh i mean you, you called every single one of them we talked extensively about each and every one of those memories because we definitely listened to this before we definitely heard them before yeah i'm trying to think of my own favorite yukon athletics memories and i don't I'm not really good at uh, remembering that. I'm not, and I'm also, as you guys know, not the biggest sports fan. But this this past season, when I went to lots of games, UConn men's basketball games, I did enjoy some very tense overtimes, um, and we did win finally one of them. It was like the throwback game. I can't remember, but there was like you know the old Husky was there. They had a bunch of old Husky logo memorabilia that I can't even remember who we played, but it was an exciting one, and we finally won in an overtime this season. So that was. That was fun for me. Ken, you were sharing some interviews you had done. That was fun. Well, actually, in in rethinking about it a little bit quickly, before I came to UConn, way before I came to UConn, and I was at WPKN in Bridgeport, and I would do sports. And so we were able to get credentialed. uh, My my longtime radio partner, uh, Walt Dobas, and I, we got to go to Madison Square Garden to cover UConn in the Big East tournament back way back when, back in in the 80s, in the early 90s. And having grown up going to games at the Garden as a kid, I used to, I started watching college basketball in the days of uh, Lou Alcindor before he became Jabbar. And uh, seeing him play in college and going there as a fan when I was like in middle school, to be able to walk on the floor of the Garden through the tunnel to the press area and then see Jerry Eisenberg, the, the, the legendary columnist for the Newark Star-Ledger, uh, and all those people that I grew up reading was was pretty amazing to to be there as not quite a peer, but you know doing the same work that they were doing and doing my first radio recordings. That's my first Yukon memory. It still resonates today because I actually got to cover the team cool. for a few years directly. I think my favorite moment was probably the uh, Tate George shot against mm-hmm. Clemson in the Sweet Sixteen in nineteen ninety. That was just such a that was a great year. That was the the first sort of magical Jim Calhoun team. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, what a moment that was. Speaking of moments, a big moment in Yukon history came back in all the way back in 2017 when Store Center slash Downtown Stores opened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people who uh, graduated before that are stunned when they come back and they see all the changes. <laughs> if you don't know, this is the area. It's kind of across from the Fine Arts Complex and also E.O. Smith. And, it didn't uh, open until 2017? 2017, yeah. I mean, they've been building it before that, but like when it was finally completed in 2017. Yeah, the discussions were when I, when I first arrived at UConn in 2002, we were talking about the plans. And I ran several stories in, in what was then called Traditions Magazine before we can't we change the name to Yukon magazine about the plans and how long it had been on the books and everybody's uh, thoughts that we should have a, a downtown like that. Yeah, the um if you go to the website, the official website, they talk about how this planning started in 1999, but here at Tom's History Corner, <laughs> we know uh, actually we know. The plans had been in the works since 1979. Wow. For some kind of commercial and residential center uh, in stores. I'm going to quote from a, a Daily Campus article in 1980. Yukon is trying to interest private developers in constructing a commercial complex, including a hotel, restaurant, and small shops on Route 195 to attract more visitors, conferences, and workshops to the school. Uh, this was a time uh, when the, the only hotel for visitors uh, in the area were uh, on-campus residence halls and the Willimantic Motor Inn, which is, oh, uh, boy. I believe, is, is uh, it's about eight miles away. I didn't know this. This was interesting from this article. Shippy Hall was mm-hmm. actually intended to be a hotel. I knew that. I did not know that. Uh, so I didn't know that it never was a hotel. I knew because when I lived in Shippy, I lived in the center block of rooms, which actually were set up like hotel rooms. I had a bathroom that I shared only with my roommate. So the middle of that building has its own bathrooms, and then the two wings on the sides have communal dorm-style bathrooms. The rumor was that it had been a hotel. So I didn't know that it never was, though. Interesting stuff. I also remember reading something about that when we were doing some of the original stories about what was originally planned. Yeah, apparently there was sort of demand from actually the faculty uh, because they said that visiting faculty basically couldn't come to UConn. It was impossible to have conferences and workshops and things, so they needed something. If you re- if you remember, if you go way back before 2017, if you remember what that strip was, that commercial strip out in 195, it was pretty... Store pretty 24. S- store 24, uh, Paul's Pizza, Scora's Barbershop. It was pretty bare bones. I mean, I liked all those places. Don't I get did me too. wrong. I do want to point a clarification here. The um, store center opened in 2012, but was completed in 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they finished in 2017. But what you may not recall, because you weren't here, is that our offices, mm-hmm. the University Communications offices, where uh, I first started, were where Dog Lane Cafe, Seven mm-hmm. Eleven, and and that whole complex was. That was all that stuff was across the street from us. That's where we used to get lunch in the lovely in publications that, building. Yes. Yeah, with, with doors that opened right under the street. <laughs> <laughs> and w- which at one time was a gymnasium for women because underneath the floors that we worked on was a gym floor. Wow. Hmm. It used to, and it also was the place of the co-op at one time. Hmm. I, I remember because I was a reporter and I would go and interview Karen Grava, the university spokeswoman, mm-hmm. in her office there. And uh, it just it felt like it had been, you know, like hastily built after <laughs> World War II and never really improved since then. Now it's very nice. If you go to downtown stores slash store center, I always forget which is which. They use both names. I don't know why. It's okay. I think I figured out the distinction recently because I was working on a project that had a link. So we were told to change it to downtown stores. 
Downtown stores is the entire area, which is what the Mansfield Downtown Partnership calls it and how they uh, they have a website and market it. And that's that includes Price Chopper. That includes the older building, you know, the, the other buildings that had existed before the new development. Store Center is the retail development with all the new buildings, the retail oh. and housing development. So that is the nuance there. But Tom, do you have more to tell us about the evolution of this plan from 1979 on? Nope. You don't? No. No, I, <laughs> I just found this article and I thought it was interesting. <laughs> So what else did it say? Uh, actually, I mean, it talked about how they were trying to get the town interested by um, the idea that they could lease the land to a private developer, which would allow the town to tax the property, because that was Yukon property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in fact, this was a public-private partnership that Mansfield and Yukon and uh, private developers got involved in. So this idea was there for a very long time before work started. I remember covering Yukon in the early 2000s for the Journal Enquirer newspaper, and this was coming up. And I remember being totally skeptical. I just thought this will never happen. Wow. Never, I mean, it took it took this. a long time, but it did happen. It did. It's, it it's did. an exciting place. Housing for 1,300 people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, dozens of shops and things. Uh, Puppetry know, Museum. Which is great. I love it. It's awesome. Museum. I love it there, too. Well, that does it for Tom's History Corner. We've all learned a lot today. <laughs> Not as much as we wanted to learn. But <laughs> you know what? Uh, Tom, I know about, you're extremely busy. I am just giving you. You know, uh, how about you do the history corner? No. And the interview with Mike. Last Enright. time I did a history corner, I got in very big trouble with some alums. <laughs> That's right. And we had our highest ever listens in a month to date. So That's it's true. Two so maybe you should do the history point. corner. <laughs> maybe you should always do the history corner and always find a way to like needle some alums. Oh, fond memories. Well, you know, in month 87 of quarantine, I'm glad that we're still able to put Yukon 360 out there. Yes, me too. I think uh, considering we'll be doing this for the duration, I might actually buy a microphone. Hey, that'd be good. You know, I'm flabbergasted by how good you sound without one. Sometimes you sound better than me and I use a microphone. So, (laughs) hey. 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 If I can just keep the equipment working, I'll I'll, I'll be okay. Yeah, I hear another story. (laughs) There are technical challenges galore. (laughs) Folks, if you've enjoyed this, and I don't see how you could not have enjoyed this, uh, you can follow us on the on Twitter.com at Yukon Podcast, at main underscore old, which is where I put uh, pictures of Yukon and days gone by. You can follow me on Twitter, at TJ Breen, and you can check out all the news that you can handle about the University of Connecticut at today.yukon.edu. That's our main news source. Julie, is there anything you would like to plug? I'm at Julie Bartuka, and as I mentioned, reopen.yukon.edu is where you can find everything you need to know on our plans to reopen. Ken, how about you? Yes, we have breaking news from the Avery Point campus at the shoreline. There is a outdoor art exhibit and video art projection show that has just opened, and there are about, I think, about a dozen pieces of art, sculpture, outside uh, and then there at night at dusk there are video projections of video films including one uh, by a recent uh, graduate of the MFA program who I spoke with uh, Shadia Hanin Nilforish who just finished the program uh, Mother of Blueness is the name of her film it's a very personal and, and wide-ranging film of, of lots of different things that are in her part of her life she has a very 
diverse background and is reflecting upon that in this film. And the exhibit is going to be extended in terms of the outdoor section to beyond the original September 30th end date. And hopefully that will uh, allow them to uh, get back into operation uh, as things get back to whatever the new normal is down at the Avery Point campus, as it is everywhere. There will be a UConn Today story coming up on that and a video that uh, our friend Angie Reyes made in connection with that at some time in the near future. For the near future... On Saturdays from 3 to 6 at 91.7 WHUS in stores, you can sound alternative. You can hear my good music show. And, of course, on Fridays at 11 o'clock, you can hear the best of the UConn 360 podcast that we have all selected, which reminds me I have to come up with some new ones for September. Well, after this episode, we've got a gold mine of best of moments. <laughs> I think this was a fun one. I agree. Uh, and, and good luck to all, all the students who are returning to stores and to Stanford, and uh, and of course the faculty and staff as well. And um, let's all keep our fingers crossed. Stay that, smart. That this goes. Yeah, stay smart. Take the Yukon promise. Thanks, everybody. Bye.